Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, New York, ExxonMobil, and global warming. And Richard, since last we talked, the Attorney General of New York State, Eric Schneiderman, has subpoenaed documents from ExxonMobil, documents in some cases going back to the 1970s on whether um, – relating to whether the company has lied um, as it was phrased to investors or to consumers uh, about the threat of climate change. So can you – well, let's start here. Can you explain for our audience how would um, how would one build sort of a case for the company's liability here? What is the attorney general pursuing? Well, first of all, he's moving under a statute known as the Martin Act from 1921, and it's an extremely aggressive statute, far broader in its implications and power than the Federal Securities Act. Uh, what it does in effect is it says if we think you made a statement or an omission which is likely to induce or to change behavior um, of investors, we can sue you on the strength of that. We don't have to show that anybody has relied upon it or anybody has been hurt by it. So essentially all you can focus on is the conduct of the individuals in the firm who says it. You don't have to focus on anything else. And it's exactly this kind of statute which sent Elliot Spitzer off on his various crusades against other individuals and makes New York an outlier. And of course, there's a lot of tension in this because New York is the home of many financial institutions and therefore always subject to jurisdictional um, powers of, the, of New York State, and they have to fight all this stuff. And Schneiderman is a man who knows his own mind. Um, he is the world's expert on global warming. Just have to ask him about that. And his attitude is that the question on the science has already been decided. Anybody who disagrees with him is therefore going to be regarded as a liar. And since they are a liar, it's appropriate for him to chase after them. How this relates to changes in stock prices and fluctuations over 36 years is left unstated. Why it is that only Exxon contributes to the global consensus of either shareholders or anybody else on global warming is against something which as yet we don't know anything about. There's two points in there that I actually want you to, to get you to expand on. One, you mentioned the fact that while Schneiderman may think he's an expert on this, this is still – even amongst those who fully believe in climate change, there's obviously – there are differences as to how severe it may be, how intense it may be. Given that the underlying information here is – is contingent or a matter of conjecture, d does that shape um, how, how a legal case could be built? It's not as if they are, they are hiding facts that are already known, things that have already occurred. Yes. No, this is not a question about past misconduct and theft or that they've discovered a huge deposit of oil, traded on the information and then disclosed it to the public. The reason why this is so strange is that there's no inside information that the corporation has separate from anybody else. And if they start putting information out about this, there are thousands of other people talking about the same subject and the thought that anything they say is going to have a disproportionate impact is really something of a mystery. As to the other question, is there or is there not a, a consensus? Well, the basic point about this is there are two camps that you often see. One of them who calls their opposition the deniers, and this is a, a self-conscious imitation of the Holocaust. That is, anybody who denies the Holocaust, a past event richly documented, is 
is no worse or better off than anybody who denies global warming, even though, to put it mildly, the uh, documentation of a future uncertain event as opposed to a past heinous act is a rather different situation. Then on the other side, there are a large number of fairly articulate people um, who call the, the other side alarmists. That is, what they do is they always manage to raise these huge claims about global warming. And what they do is they completely screw up the priorities that people ought to have. So instead of fixing malaria, instead of fixing malnutrition, instead of trying to make sensible improvements in the way in which you can uh, deal with famine and so forth in undeveloped countries, they want to spend billions and trillions of dollars on global warming. Warming, uh, where they won't be able to do anything. There is, you know, is a recent set of studies that I've read by some of the doubters on this that announced that if the president's entire plan were put into place and were uh, at great cost designed to change temperature, it would do so to less than 0.01 degree in a 50-year period, um, which means to say that there's no change at all because um, annual perturbations on this are going to be a larger order of magnitude. And so it is a huge chasm. Now, is there any agreement? Well, there's one fact on which everybody agrees, but it's a non-fact in one sense. Um, if, in fact, everything else is held constant and you increase the level of carbon dioxide, its heat-trapping policy should translate into an increase in temperature. But that's not much of a consensus at all because one of the things that you have to ask is exactly what the rate of the increase is with the rate of the increase in carbon dioxide. And the recent evidence on that tends to be against the alarmists, as they are called, on global warming. Uh, the sharpest increases we've had in carbon dioxide content have basically come since about the year 2000, and the temperature increases in there have been negligible, slightly higher than zero, but relatively small for a 15-year period. And so if somebody says, well, this is the fourth warmest year on record or the second warmest year on record, you're not talking about huge variations. You're talking about tens of degrees, and the line after 1998 looks relatively flat. So the real question is just how much is this going to happen, and we don't know what the slope is. In addition to that, we don't know what else is going to matter, and that could be systematic effects, sunspots, or whatever it may be, or it could be some kind of random event, a huge volcano that puts all sorts of soot into the sky, which will depress temperatures around a large portion of the globe. Uh, so this is a really kind of complicated phenomenon, and the fact that you agree that there's some positive relationship between carbon dioxide and temperature levels doesn't establish exactly what you should do, nor in fact, even if you thought that the thing was quote, an alarm, a real fact and that all the quote-unquote deniers were terrible people, um, it doesn't address the question of how horrifically maladapted our current environmental laws are to deal with this question, nor does it address the question of how you get India and China to cooperate when their emissions dominate ours by orders of magnitude. Richard, there has been some speculation and we should underline at this point that it is purely speculation. But I've seen in a few places in the press people saying if the New York Attorney General's office pushed hard enough on an issue like this, it is possible that a major company like ExxonMobil might find it more expedient just to settle instead of finding fighting this thing to the very end. I wonder if you might talk about for our audience for a moment. We've talked about in other contexts in the past things like um, – the deferred prosecution agreements, the, the tendencies that, that corporations have sometimes to just make these things go away. What sort of implications does that have for the integrity of the legal system? 
Well, I mean, I've always been a fierce opponent of deferred prosecution agreements. And you should explain reason- what those are for a moment. Yes. I okay. Well, that. a deferred prosecution agreement is the government comes up to either an individual or a corporation and it says, we will agree to defer the prosecution of you on condition that you do certain kinds of things. And some of the things that they could ask or could be extremely difficult. They can say, look, what we want you to do is to let us have an observer in your boardroom to report to us each and every decision that you make so we can decide whether or not they're consistent with the obligations that you have under the securities law. And it can say, if in fact we think that there's some kind of violation, the only hearing you're going to get is inside our office. And if we decide that you're wrong, we can prosecute. Now, to understand the prosecutor corporation, often means the forfeiture of its licenses. So the small fine that might be involved, a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars, is nothing compared to your inability to do business. This is extremely important with respect to various kinds of financial operations and corporations and banks and so forth, and with other companies that are heavily dependent on licenses like pharmaceutical sorts of companies. So this is a situation where the threat of prosecution for which you have no protection is much more serious than an actual conviction, but which you have all sorts of protection. And dialing back on these things, I regard as a major, major development if you can get it to be done. Occasionally, you have guidelines that cut back. uh, But people like Eric Holder, particularly when he was deputy attorney general under the Clinton administration and so forth, and Larry Thompson, a Republican under the Bush administration, they really pushed these things very hard. Mark Phillip, who was a deputy attorney general, actually tried to cut back on them. But remember, this can always be done at the state level, no matter what the federal guidelines are. So you really have to fear something about this. Now, what is the strategy? Well, what are you going to agree to? I mean, if the deferred prosecution agreement says you hereby agree to defer prosecution by reducing the amount of carbon-based fuels that you're going to have by 50% in the next 10 years, uh, that's basically a death warrant for the business. Um, And so you're going to have to ask, what are they going to request? My guess is that I would do it slightly differently if I were advising Exxon. This is free advice. I have no connection with the company. But I think I would do what they've already started to do. I take every conceivable record that I have and I would already make them available to the public. That is the most dangerous thing that you could have here is that uh, Schneiderman gets to put out redacted documents that are basically cherry picking. If all the documents are out there and he tries to cherry pick one of them, everybody else can look at the full document. There was a fairly powerful editorial against Schneiderman in the Wall Street Journal this morning and it had one paragraph which contained exactly that kind of a situation. The stuff that was published was, oh my God, look at this consensus on global warming. The sentence that was admitted is, you know, I don't agree with it. And, you know, you do this. Now, it's really hard in a corporation that has, say, 15,000, 16,000 scientists. Everybody's not going to be in agreement on anything that's going on there. And the last thing you want to do is to say, well, if one scientist inside of Exxon thinks that the warnings that they took were not severe enough, everybody who disagreed with him was in some sense engaged in a fraud. The aggregation of sentiments, it seems to me, is a perfectly legitimate business. Companies have to pick and sort and choose. They make their own judgments. And in fact, when they take their public positions, collectively, they can be attacked and criticized by others, which is 
perfectly legitimate. But the notion that somehow or other you're going to start looking at a criminal indictment because you, Mr. Schneiderman, knowing basically nothing about this subject as far as I can tell, have decided that there is a consensus which is being undermined by potential fraud which is deceiving investors. How it is that this even hurts them, nobody really starts to know. It really is, I think, a really classic case of the abuse of prosecutorial discretion. I think the first thing that he should do is look at all the public documents that he has available and if he thinks that there's something about those documents that are suspect, he should tell us what it is and give the company a chance to answer. And if he thinks there's something about those documents which suggests that there's some email, he doesn't have to give this blunderbuss request, tell me everything you've done in 35 years. He gives a specific inquiry, gets a specific answer, and then if that turns out positive, he can continue his investigation. But this is, in effect, the terrorum attack Interim attack trying to overwhelm a particular company on this kinds of things where the scientific consensus may in general be in favor of the alarmist side on the uh, global warming thing as opposed to the other side of this stuff. But it's certainly not clear. And just as a simple point, all of the models that were projected 10 years ago are not true. That is, if you look at uh, Al Gore, remember what he said? We'd be frying by 2016 when he talked about an inconvenient truth. Well, we're not frying. Um, the situation seems to be rather different from that. And so until you can explain the errors in your own models, I think a modicum of modesty would be perfectly appropriate. Some people have drawn parallels here with the um, legal attacks that came in the 90s against the tobacco industry. How apt a comparison do you think that is? Well, I think it's kind of strange. I mean, with tobacco, you can certainly figure out what the correlation is between smoking and lung cancer because you have all of the endpoints on the one hand and all of the inputs on the other. So you're not trying to speculate about huge, diffuse phenomenon where you don't even know what the relevant variables are in terms of their causation. I should say I did work for the tobacco companies at one time in order to mount their defense, and we were quite successful in the individual case. And the explanation is, uh, it was very difficult to conceal information about tobacco and its severity when, in fact, this stuff was widely understood by the public at large. In other words, back in the 1930s, cigarettes were called coffin nails. Back in 1952, Reader's Digest published a three- or four-page article which denounced smoking and all of its aspects. If you start looking at the numbers on smokers, what happens is you see as the information about the danger becomes more certain, uh, the level of smoking starts to go down, not only in in terms of the number of smokers, but in the kind of cigarettes you smoke, less tar, less nicotine, and all the rest of that stuff. So it suggests that people kind of responded to a market in a normal fashion. Um, when you were just suing in individual cases, you could not win a case uh, if you were bringing it on behalf of a smoker. Uh, the combination of objective knowledge and subjective knowledge that people had just overwhelmed the causation issue. Uh, people were told thousands of times by their doctors, by their families, by their spouses, by their ministers, by their teachers, by their students, quit smoking, it's bad for your health. And then they turn around and they said, we had no information about this at all. It was only when you detached the Medicaid claims um, from the uh, individual injury claims and were able to say falsely, in my view, uh, that these, sub these claims were not subrogation claims but independent causes of action so that all of the assumption of risk issues drop out of the picture uh, that they managed to beat the tobacco companies. I still think that's a wholly illegitimate move. Nobody asked for my opinion recently. But the thought <laughs> that somehow or other uh, the knowledge base that you have inside the companies with respect to global warming is remotely comparable to that of tobacco 
back, or I might add, asbestos where there was actually probably some secret information, uh, maybe by Johns Mansville and some of its other competitors, a point which has been hotly debated. I think that that's sort of crazy in this case. There's nothing that they have in their files about the universe, which is not available to other people. So the thought that there's an insider advantage in this particular case of one company amongst many strikes me as just a preposterous kind of argument to make if what you're looking to is trolling for information to make some kind of a criminal prosecution. And I really think it's a kind of a sad day uh, to see somebody as self-righteous as Schneiderman going after these guys. What you really need to do is design better systems for dealing with carbon emissions and the current rules that we have are completely perverse in the way in which they favor existing plants which are highly pollutant oriented on carbon dioxide and everything else over the introduction of new plants which could be more efficient on the one hand if they could only get licensing through the EPA. If you just concentrated on that one factor, this would change this issue very dramatically in the American context. But you see no sign whatsoever from Schneiderman or anybody else of what are sensible things you can do about carbon dioxide and in addition other forms of clear pollutants, what you do is you just get this desperate striking out at one company with no constructive critique of anything which takes place in our very complicated control efforts, let alone anything in the international arena, which given China and India, as I said before, is even more important. Last question I'll ask you very briefly. One of the people – actually one of the people who's drawn the parallel uh, between the tobacco industry and, and – um, People emitting carbon dioxide. Sheldon Whitehouse, Democratic senator from Rhode Island, and he he said over the summer suggested didn't quite embrace it, but suggested that it might be plausible to prosecute climate change deniers, as he called them, uh, under the RICO laws. Uh, we've sort of covered this in terms of global warming, but Richard, I'm curious. It does seem in recent years that there's been a tendency, especially on the left, to um, try to make political disagreements into things that are are handled through the courts that have sort of the force of law behind them. How, how concerned should we be about that? Well, I'm frightened very much about this kind of a tendency. You cannot have an open and robust debate if one side essentially is insisting that the other side be prosecuted because certitude is the way in which this game is gone. I mean, the senator may think that he knows exactly what's going on in the case, and if so, what he should do is appear on a talk show with somebody who's articulate on the other side, and we'll just see how good he is at all of this stuff. Um, but if, in fact, you tell anybody else, if you raise your head, uh, you're going to be subject to potential RICO violations. And this may even apply to individuals like myself who have no particular connection with this in one hand or another. It's the most powerful chilling effect that's imaginable. And I don't like this kind of intolerance that one starts to see. I mean, it's just not here. It's also, for example, with the Religious Restoration Acts and so forth. Uh, We prosecute a lot of people whom we turn out that we don't like in terms of the way in which they exercise their own behavior and they live their own lives. We do not need to have another round of intolerance in the United States. you know, if Senator Whitehouse wants to have a debate with me about that subject, I'm happy to join him on the platform and we can see who's going to survive and who's not. I don't think he'd do very well because I think all of these guys essentially are basically great in sailing in smooth waters, but they're not so good when they actually face some kind of a determined opposition. I don't think he'd do very well either. All right. Thank you, Richard. (laughs) Thank you, Richard. And uh, thanks to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.